Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. Hello, friends. This week, I have the pleasure of meeting James Smith, and he has brought with him two other people to talk about Black deported veterans. This was an issue for me that I had actually never heard of. Um, I had the pleasure of attending a conference, and many thanks, shout out to Antoinette Williamson, who brought the topic up for discussion uh, with the Veterans Affairs Committee for the NAACP for the California-Hawaii State Conference. Um, But I had never heard about deported veterans, much less Black deported veterans. Um, And apparently there have been uh, instances of deported veterans that have been getting together Um, mostly across the border in Mexico, Tijuana, and just listening to James talk about Black deported veterans really made me want to get more information on the subject. And in lieu of Veterans Day, I figured what better time to talk about the issues than now. So this week, James Smith, from Black Deported Veterans of America joins us. James is a video journalist located in San Diego, California. In 2013, while on assignment, James encountered the term deported veteran. And after researching and interviewing Fernando Cervantes, a former deported veteran, James continued to document various events involving the deported veterans issue. In 2021, James met David Baryu, a formerly deported veteran in Kenya on Facebook. Together, along with deported veterans Rudy Richardson from the United Kingdom and Jeff Brown from Jamaica, they formed a support group for deported veterans that identified as Black or African American, known today as BDVA or Black Deported Veterans of America. They realized that the majority of those that were not in the southern border region of the United States weren't receiving the same attention or support. Today, they are one of five major deported vet organizations fighting for the rights of deported veterans. And I also want to give a shout out to James. Um, Their nonprofit received the Salute to Our Veterans Nonprofit Award in San Diego the other day. So congratulations to the organization. I'm just pleased to have not only James, but he has brought with him David Bariu, as well as Emoja D'Souza to really talk about their stories and the impacts that deportation has had on their family. So I encourage you to listen to this episode and get more information about what is going on with deported veterans. All right. Well, I am excited to have you all with us. Um, 
mostly because I had never even heard of this issue. Uh, having gone to the NAACP state conference uh, to the Veterans Affairs Committee, and this was the first time I had really heard anything about deported veterans, much less Black deported veterans. Um, so, James, can you give us a little bit about what this issue is and, and why does it even exist? Okay, well, basically, in uh, 1996, then-President Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich uh, basically mirrored uh, the crime bill in the, immigration, uh, in the immigration sector. They changed the rules and had mandatory sentencing. Prior to 1996, judges were allowed to look at your military record if you came upon uh, uh, them for immigration proceedings and they were able to make assessments upon what they felt they should do going forward. But after 1996, they were instructed that they can no longer um, uh, take your, your military record into consideration. This is one of the points that I try to point out to other um, uh, veteran organizations and people to understand that when that this was not a mistake, that what happened to veterans, it was not a mistake. They made sure that they uh, that when they changed this Immigration Act, they made sure that they included veterans in that process. So what wound up happening was they expanded a thing called aggravated felonies. In 1988, when they created the term, they being Congress created the term aggravated felony, it fit that term. It was for murders, uh, trafficking uh, in weapons and uh, trafficking in, in, in drugs, uh, human trafficking. So it fit that criteria. But since then, they've added over 30 other uh, items that include things as much as DUIs or you could uh, you could uh, be deported for uh, petty theft if you wound up getting a sentence of 365 days, uh, uh, 365 days or more. And, you know, unfortunately, for those that don't really understand in the, the criminal justice system, generally, uh, especially in big cities like uh, Los Angeles, San Diego, New York. Uh, if you get a year sentence, okay, mo mo most of the time everybody pleads out. All right. So if you get a year sentence, you're only looking at doing about two and a half months. So you'll you'll take that deal to go ahead and walk out, not knowing that to just take that two and a half months, you just qualified yourself to uh, be deported. You know, if you uh, don't have your, your paperwork. Now, the military has always had a pathway that allowed for citizenship, but they didn't have a unilateral process of doing it. Each department was uh, was left up to their own device on when and how they wanted to go about doing it. So that's where a lot of people wind up falling through the cracks uh, in that situation. You've got some officers, you know, that are uninformed and some that may have been informed and, and purposely, you know, misled uh, the cats. But uh, most people thought that once you went into boot camp and you took your oath of enlistment, that was the same as getting your citizenship. It was a done deal. You were, the, you, I mean, you are one of the most prominent citizens in the United States. So citizenship should not be a problem. You your uh, recruiter told you that when you signed up, you were going to get free schooling and you were going to get your citizenship. And so the, the recruiter didn't necessarily lie. You just didn't make sure he told you that it could be a very difficult process for you to go ahead and do. Now, during the time of a conflict, which basically is from 2001 to present, and then those few years uh, of Desert Storm and Desert Shield, uh, those people were not what they call non-citizen inductees. 
they were given a status of expedited, uh, that they were supposed to be uh, status to have expedited uh, naturalization process. And uh, again, because there was no unilateral way of doing this, some of them wound up falling through through the cracks. Now, unfortunately, in 2008 um, uh, was when we first started seeing the whole group of uh, deported veterans, but we we saw them in Mexico. And that's where everybody's focus became when, when they, people did find out about it. It became in Mexico because those guys were, were kind of smart. They, they grouped together instead of going back to their different provinces and stuff like this. They all stayed together there in TJ with the hope that something could happen. And it did. It got it got a notice uh, and stuff and everything else. So different politicians and stuff went down there and they came out of there and you hear the Hispanic caucus. When you dig into this, you start seeing how the Hispanic caucus and, and all these different uh, Hispanic representatives pitching bills and doing things about this. Every person that we I've interviewed since 2013 all said that there were people in Africa and Jamaica and Asia and all different countries. The thing was never, we never looked at the thing as a group of black. My thing during that termination was was that those that were trying to come back were on the on the, the lists of these two organizations that were down in TJ, uh, Unified U.S. Deported Veterans and, and uh, Deported Veterans Support House. But I eventually found out that wasn't true uh, after I met David. And so we began to grow uh, Black Deported Veterans out of that. So so I'm going to uh, ask Emoja to go first um, and really talk about, can you kind of give us a little sense for your father's story and, you know, kind of how how this has impacted you? So one, I just want to highlight the fact that I am here speaking with my dad on his behalf, and that's because he was recently sick. So even more reason to get him to come back to America. Um, but a little bit about my dad's story is that my dad served in the U.S. Army. He joined shortly after he graduated high school, so around 17 years old or so. And he came to America at the age of 12. So it's kind of like he came at a very, very young age. Um, he served in the Army for about six years and got an honorable discharge. He um, committed a few crimes and he has served time for the crimes. It wasn't anything gruesome like murder. It was like some petty crimes. But I guess that's subjective to who you're telling about the crime, right? Um, and so he created he did the time for the crimes. And then 20 years later, ISIS is knocking on his door like, you're going back to Jamaica. And it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, so that was like really crazy. Um, and just a story about how that happened is that my dad was living in Atlanta at the time when he got deported and he was there with his fiance. They must've gone to an argument that night. And so she was sleeping upstairs and he was sleeping on the couch. Typical stuff, right? And so at six o'clock in the morning, he gets a knock on his door. And um, she comes down and opens the door. And so some like police officer type guys are like looking for someone, but it's not anyone that lives there. So my dad was just very confused by that and ended up going to the door to say like, hey, like what you're looking for isn't here. And it was like, oh, you're Mark. And it just basically handcuffed him. And that's how it happened. So I heard that that's usually their typical tactic of acting like they're looking for someone else. And so they basically arrested him. Um, and that was March of 2013. So I was a freshman in college at that time. And he spent two year, two months in jail, which he spent his birthday in jail during that time and then got deported back to Jamaica. So this March coming will make 10 years since he's been in Jamaica. Wow. So wait, so you said he served in the military and then 20 years later, they went and did this. So, so how did, I mean, is it just like, all of a sudden their records got updated and they decided that they needed to go do this or how does. Yeah. We're trying to pinpoint like how that actually happened or how they like 
found him per se. I want to say that he went to renew his license or something like that. And maybe that pinged something on their radar. I don't know if they've been looking for him or whatever the case may be. And, you know, just doing a regular daily activity, updating my license. And then next thing you know, they're at your door. But again, the crimes that he committed were done 20 years prior and he hadn't done anything within those 20 years. All he did was serve the time. So kind of like he's being punished twice at this right. point. Interesting. All right. So and then, and David, can you talk a little bit about your story? We we now are in Jamaica, but I know you have a different story. Uh, yes, Melissa. Uh, well, my story is I came to the United States in uh, August of 1998 to pursue my father's education with an F1 student visa at um, Southern Arkansas University. Uh, two semesters down the lane. I was in holiday in Dallas with my friends. I was approached by a recruiter and uh, promised me all kinds of good stuff, uh, free education and uh, naturalization, respectively. Uh, I got recruited in the U.S. Army. And then two years down the lane, my unit commander calls me in and uh Let's me know that uh, my recruiter, he's been uh, court-martialed for fraudulently recruiting uh, internationals in, uh, in the Army. So I had to attend to that. I had to, I had to go to Fort Hood, Texas for his uh, court-martial. He was found guilty. Then with that result, uh, the U.S. Army uh, honorably discharged me because now they couldn't keep me in. And uh, thereafter, ICE decided to... Uh, give me a voluntary departure to leave the country. So at that point in time, I wasn't conversant with uh, immigration laws. And uh, I opted to get uh, more advice from my friends. I drove back to Dallas. That's where I was uh, introduced to another lawyer who was uh, conversant with immigration uh, military laws. So I filed for my first uh, naturalization under Section 329 of military service during hostilities. And uh, that kept me afloat. And uh, I was fortunate again to join uh, the, the Air Force Reserve for another five years. And there I progressed well. I was a surgical tech and then transitioned again to... Um, Optometry tech. Then, uh, as uh, D'Souza's daughter said, uh, immigration popped up at my residence, <laughs> looking for somebody that didn't uh, didn't live in my residence. But as soon as I opened the door, <laughs> they told me, "Yes, that's you. We're looking for." And I was detained, processed through ICE Dallas, and I was detained for one year in Haskell Detention Center. And you're from where? I'm from Kenya. Okay. So you come over here and you do all of this service. You go in, and which branch was it? Uh, U.S. Army. U.S. Army. Two, two years and uh, Air Force Reserve, five years. Okay. And so you've done your service and then they're coming to pick you up to deport you back to Kenya for what exactly? Um, according to their records, they said I did not attend school. But I did attend school. So they said I, I got it into the States and I did not go to school at all to Southern Arkansas. So that was the reason. 
um okay because i i had no felonies i had no crimes so they had to look for a reason you know wow and and so this this just happens james all i mean just they just decide that if somebody hasn't gone to school that they can be deported back to wherever they were born i guess you could say reverse engineering uh some of the things that have happened you know, there's argument that there's a list uh, that is already out there. They won't acknowledge that they, meaning DHS and the government, doesn't acknowledge there's a list. But what happened to Moses' dad, Mark? I saw happen to uh, some other veterans. They that when they, but they had gone to uh, apply for their veterans benefits at the VA, and two months after that, they they got removal notices. And again, in their, their cases, minor crime, they are, what do you call it, misdemeanor crimes, uh, were over two decades old. Uh, they had been paying taxes, uh, upstanding tax citizens, you know, hadn't been back in trouble, uh, operated, you know, uh, uh, a school uh, and, and, and different things in the Colorado area. But they decided one day to go in to try to get their, um, their benefits and they were dinged. So. There's somewhere there is a list of, of people that they know that have not gotten their paperwork taken care of yet. And these people are, are hitting those, those dings. So it's it's not like they're focally going out after them. The net set up for them and they're just waiting for them to fly into the net. At one time or another, you're going to have to go renew your license. At one time or another, you're going to have to uh, sign up in the VA. So it's just different things that you know that you're going to wind up coming across and likely come across that they go ahead and do this. But I mean, what one of the vilest thing to this this whole rule is is that you could be a minister. You could you could have created that crime when you were, you know, fresh out of the out of the service. You know, uh, having a hard time uh, transitioning, then gotten your life uh, uh, around, and you're the minister of a congregation, and you just happen to go out on a Black Lives Matter march. And they decide to do a roundup and you get deported, you know, because of something that happened. No matter what your status is right now, that's not taken into consideration is if that crime fits to that bill. It's goodbye to you. Yeah. And I think Emoja said it's like you're getting double penalized for something that has been done seemingly years ago in these cases anyway. So how is it impacting the families? Um, cause I know, I know David, I think you had mentioned that you have a, you have a family. Um, and I think you were over here and then you were deported back to Kenya and life was different when you got back, you know, and Emoja has this, you know, you're, this was your father. So he was taken away and you're still here in America. So how has it impacted the, the family unit? So my dad has nine kids and yeah, he has a lot of kids, <laughs> but we all love him very, very dearly. Um, and it has impacted us tremendously. My dad has missed the birth of grandchildren. He's missed graduations. I'm actually set to get married in March and it breaks my heart that he probably won't be able to walk me down the aisle or maybe who knows. Um, and so very, very depressing stuff. And also um, the same woman that I spoke about earlier, who was his fiance, she actually passed while he's been away. And so he hasn't been able to attend her funeral. And she was like the love of his life. Um, his dad had also passed away. And so um, I actually met his dad on his deathbed and I flew to Florida to meet him for the first time on his deathbed, just so I can FaceTime my dad so he could tell his dad bye, which was kind of um, depressing. And then um, 
most recently I got a call stating that my dad hadn't showed up for work for a few days um, and that someone went to go check on him and he's basically in bed, unable to move, unable to speak, very, very weak. And I'm just like, what's going on with him? And so I literally bought a ticket to Jamaica and spent a couple hundred dollars just to go check on him, come to find out he had a stroke and now he suffers from extreme memory loss. And so he doesn't really have a lot of people there to take care of him. So I worry about him every day. And, you know, unlike other people who can just go up to their dad and hug and kiss him, I can't do that. I have to think about, do I have time to take off of work? Do I have money in my pocket to get a ticket? Where am I staying when I go to Jamaica? Like lots of different questions that you have to think about. Yeah, no doubt. David? Uh, my situation is getting deported back to a country I've been gone for over nine years and I'm going back to a hostile situation. Uh, they don't say it much in the media, but uh, our neighboring country is Somali in Kenya. And uh, they're known to have radicals. They're called Al-Shabaab. And the situation, even before I came to the States back in 98, Three days after I got my F1 student visa, they bombed the embassy. If you can recall the U.S. bombing, uh, U.S. embassy bombing. Yes. Three days after. Now I'm going back to the same situation. Mm -hmm. They've been terrorizing uh, malls, schools, uh, police departments, transportation, uh, churches. So it's not been easy for me. And I'm going back as a veteran. My status is I am a veteran. So getting a job, it's difficult. The only way I got a job was through my, my dad's company, which did not, it, it did not last long because he passed away and the shareholders decided to part ways also. So I was moving from one town to another trying to find a job and trying to keep a low profile on my status. And I was fortunate enough to get to get family, I have two kids, and uh, it's been it's been rough, you know. Giving them promises, everything would be okay, and you don't know when it's gonna be okay. So yeah, it's been it's been tough. It's been and you're you're back in the United States now, or yes, or I came I came okay. back. Um, uh, it started basically on the twenty sixth. I was approved for my twenty sixth of May. I was approved for my uh, parole letter. Then I had to make arrangements to get uh, my ticket, which was through a veteran organization that supported deported veterans. We have uh, DFW. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, there's a commander, uh, Levier, with assistance from James. They went out there and uh, promoted my situation and were able to uh, come up with an airline ticket. And this took another one one and a half months so by around 7 september that's when i was able to fly back wow it was uh tasking as in people didn't understand the government will take you back deport you back to uh, whatever the origin of your country but they will not bring you back that is your own expense so different wow interesting let's pause for a moment we'll be right back So what is the solution to some of this? Because I know, James, you had mentioned uh, in the room that I was in that there is some legislation out there, but it, it sounds like it doesn't go far enough. Um, 
to address the issue? Well, um, it just has some ambiguous, ambiguous things. Uh, and, um, you know, it's up to debate on how far uh, it, it it, it goes or it can go or, or should go, uh, depending on who you talk to. Um, the Currently, there are three, three major bills uh, that are in Congress. There's uh, SB 3212 and 1182. They are both companion bills, uh, H.R. 1182. They're companion bills. H.R. 1182 is the House bill. SB 3212 is the Senate bill. But they're companion bills called the Veterans Deportation and Prevention Act. Uh, one, uh, the, uh, Senator Padilla presented the uh, SB 3212. Uh, some of the supporters are Cory Booker. They're signed on are Cory Booker. Uh, Bernie, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Dick Durbin, Diane Feinstein, um, of course, Padilla, uh, and, and, and a couple of others. But we don't hear too much uh, about them saying anything. And then on the House bill side, it was presented by Mark Takano and uh, um, one of the rock stars. And there were two other rock stars and there are AOC and Cheryl, um, Cheryl Jackson Lee that are supporting those bills but uh you don't hear too much from them even though uh miss lee has been at the hearings and has been testifying at the hearings but she's the only black person that i've seen throughout this thing that have consistently uh lately been advocating for the veteran not she hasn't been specifically for the black deported veteran but for the deported veteran most people don't know about the black deported veteran. Uh, those that, that even know about this issue, they only know it in a Hispanic sense. So um, uh, getting back to the legislation. So the legislation has been tinted in that, that sense. That has been more of an immigration issue. And that's what keeps getting people lo locked up into it. And the divisiveness of it is people keep trying to look at it as a, uh, as a immigration issue. Whereas we look at it as a veteran issue. It is an issue of honor. Now, uh, what has happened is that this past summer, 79, H.R. 7986 was introduced by, again, by Mark Takano. That's the Veterans Service Recognition Act. Theoretically, it's 1182 and 1183 put together. 1182 was stop, you know, stopping the deportation of uh, veterans and helping them bring back. 1183 was honor the oath. That was basically saying that, that when you raise your hand for that citizenship, then the uh, pathway should be presented for you, you know, uh, in a unilateral way so that you're able to achieve that, you know, raise your hand and took the oath for. 7946, that's what it, it pretty much puts both of those together. It has a, a line in there to me that's ambiguous because it says that they would form a, a panel that would look at uh, all those that didn't have serious crimes. So it's what the serious crimes mean, you know, in that process. Unfortunately, that's what we're really going to need is legislation to change things around because what they, they've been promoting out here, the MV, Immigrant Military Members and Veterans Initiative, looks good from the outside. But when you're operating it from the inside and seeing the inside, you realize this is what I was talking about, about a Band-Aid or a, a bullet hole. If you follow the hearings or follow what they're talking about, they're utilizing a thing or a term called humanitarian parole. And that's the process by which bringing uh, cats back uh, if they choose to decide that um, uh, you are worthy of coming back. And, and, and that criteria is not shared with those of us that are 
you know, fighting for this, not even with the lawyers. We, you know, we we have meetings with the ACLU, ACLU and uh, immigrant defenders and public counsel and Margaret Stock and some of the great lawyers that have been, you know, dealing with this situation uh, at the beginning of every month. Actually, we have another one tomorrow, uh, meeting with them tomorrow, the first Thursday of each more, uh, month. And they share with us the, the challenges that they have. And one of the challenges is, is that they're not giving the criteria of what is like the baseline that people are looking for. So you're when you're going in, you're having to shoot for the moon. And then Congress has given them the leeway not to that they don't have to tell you why they turn you down. Again, that becomes my argument about being disingenuous, because if uh, Secretary Mayorkas and and, uh, President Biden are saying that this was an abhorrent thing and and needs to be taken care of, then why aren't you doing dropping all the guardrails out the way so that we can uh, effectively uh, make changes in this? Um, you, we have to wind up doing a FOIA request, you know, Freedom of Information Act a request at the end, because when we ask why was this person turned down, you know, they remind you that they don't have to tell you. And my point is, it's those key words have to not that you were ordered that you can't. You don't have to. So if you're going to really help us, you would be like, here, here's all the information that you need. Here's what you need to go ahead and do that. We have a thing called mobile. Well, it used to be called mobile airlift command. It's called air mobile command. What that is, is if you're a military member back when I was in, in the eighties, it was $10. I don't know how much it is now. It's probably like 20 or 30 bucks, but for $10, you can literally go go around the world on a Mac flight. It's called space available. You just had to find the flight that was going there and you had to deal with the timings and everything else. So we're like, you know, I've offered up to them in the meetings. Why are we not utilizing those things instead of having these guys? Because the black deported veteran has a different situation than my brothers, my brothers and, and TJ and whereas they're able to walk over, you know, literally that's how you see them coming back is walking over. Now, some of them do wind up flying, you know, some coming from South America, Central America, you know, those cases. But in most cases, they're walking over. We have to fly. No matter where we're coming from, we have to fly unless we get to Mexico. We tried to hook David up. David did a couple of times to try to get him into Mexico so he could walk back. Mexico will only give you a visa for so long, so much a period of time. And if you don't have it locked in, that you're going to be able to walk on this certain day, it makes it even more difficult. So those are things that we've offered to them. USCIS, you take your planes down there with filled with 100, 200 people, and they're coming back empty. You're when the next time you send somebody down there, you could bring them back. So there are many other things that they could be doing to, to make this situation a lot easier with what we're doing. So, you know, no disrespect to those that operated the, the uh, Underground Railroad. But in theory, that's what we're doing right now is we're utilizing whatever uh, processes that we can with the, the help of schools like Duke University, who's helping, you know, her dad, um, schools like um, University of Texas, Yale, uh, Harvard, Cornell. And I think there's a couple other ones that, that are in there. I just don't know who they are. But those school law schools have decided to come in and do a lot of the footwork to begin, uh, you know, to work that process uh, for from these organizations that have been overworked, you know, their grants are running out. So they or they're limited. You know, here in California, we have the best groundwork of everybody here because we have a, a state that pretty much is supportive of immigrants as it is. 
uh, and stuff. So uh, what's happening is we're, we're trying to find or put together a plan here. We Like we call it on the back of our shirts, it's, you know, uh, bring them back and build them up initiative that is to help the process so that we, we cover that person isn't stressed about having to, to get back here, worrying about, you know, what their housing is, worrying about uh, all these things while they're still trying to set aside their, the set aside the criminal um, uh, uh, background. Because unlike David, David's situation was, and, and even that came out difficult. David's situation was he had no crime. They said, okay, we're flying you back here to do your naturalization interview. You're going to do it one week after you get back here. He goes and do it and does it. That was September 13th. And we we've been waiting this whole time to hear what's going on. What's the situation where in most cases it's, it's done that same day or the very next day, you know? So we, we discovered, that's why when we're, we're doing this, we're discovering that, okay, you can't count that this is going to happen this way. Some certain things can go ahead and put you off. We got a cat, Pablo Dilbert. He has a family where he's got a son that has a neurological condition that's back there in, in, in Honduras. He's trying to get his thing done. He's five months into his humanitarian parole, which means he only got a little over six months left. And they're just now uh, getting ready to give him a, a job, a working permit. You know, so he can be able to be, uh, begin to do these things. So, you know, to to anyone utilizing the process, really humanitarian parole without having a law, a lawyer that's going to deal with the the criminal element is is the only good for it is to come back here and get your benefits uh, taken care of, visit your family, you know, for a hot second and then get back. The problem that sucks is a lot of these guys are giving up their their homes that they made for the past 10 or 15 years in, in, in the countries that they're at, the jobs and careers with the hope, not knowing, you know, until, well, in our group, we know, because I tell them every I, every, I remind them every week, you know, look, you know, when they're like, why is this and that? And I'm understanding you are trying to see, you're seeing people coming back and it looks like uh, all this other stuff. But if you notice, all you hear them saying is humanitarian parole. You do not hear them saying citizenship. And, the, and this whole thing is about citizenship, but they're making you focus on humanitarian parole as, as saying we're doing something. Is it better than what was there? Yes. You know, but I, I liken it to a general basically finding out that he's got a, a platoon that's stranded out in the desert and they, they need supplies. And, you know, he's in front of a bunch of mics and he goes, you know what? I'm going to make sure my men are taken care of and their food, they're fed and, and they've got all the supply, you know, got the supplies that they need. And then you you wind up finding out later that somebody showed up there with two boxes of rich crackers and a, a two liter bottle of water. That was all they were able to get. But that they're going to put the spin on is it. like, yes, we got them nourishment and we got them something out there. Yeah. Did you get them more than what they had? Yeah. But really, what the hell was two liter or uh, two liter uh, bottle of water and, and these crackers going to do? That's what I, I like in this whole situation too. Right. Wow. That's that's. I mean, I don't even know what to say about half of this stuff because it's like it's so new to me, and I know that you know there have been folks trying to bring attention to this for a long time. So, I mean, I'm just I'm I'm really appreciative of you all coming on and talking about the issues um, to try and help people understand what's going on. Are there things that you want to, do you want to say anything, Emoja or David, uh, as we close out to, and then I'll, I'll let um, James have the last word on 
on kind of what Black Veterans of America is um, is about and what they're doing and how people can get um, get in contact. Um, I'll just close with that. I think this whole situation is insane. I think that the government just looks at people as like a number um, and they don't really consider the fact that you have family, you have people who really care about you here. Um, and it's just sad. You know, I miss my dad. I'm almost 30 years old and I'll forever be a dad girl. And so I want to see my dad here. My dad came to America at 12 years old. America is his home regardless of where he was actually born at. Um, and so he's hoping that he... Um, he's able to come back. Um, another layer of this that I just want to touch on really quickly is mental health. That's another thing that people do not shed light on. You go back there, people are depressed and all types of mental illnesses that you deal with on top of PSD from serving in the army or any other issues associated with being in the army. And I know for a fact that my dad is depressed um, about you know his living situations because Jamaica, people see the Montego Bay and see this beautiful country. It is a very beautiful country, but in some areas it looks like third world country but people don't think about that because it's out of sight out of mind and so it's just really messed up that you the government allows people to go back to live in such conditions after they've spent their time fighting for the country for sure david uh we just um we ignore the fact that this country is is a nation built by migrants <laughs> and uh, with our outdated uh immigration policies uh, they must be modernized and not be undermined by political bureaucracy that channels hate and racism across the board. Our leaders in Congress should not entertain the deportation of U.S. veterans because uh, it does put us in uh, harm's way and also exposes the discrimination of people of color despite serving, protecting the Constitution and laws of our founding fathers. Uh, we should also help uh, deported U.S. veterans get back as soon as possible by bringing awareness through uh, uh, Black Deported Veterans of America with the initi initiative to bring them back and build, in, build them up. Make the transition process reliable and re readily available to deported U.S. veterans before and after re-entering the United States. Well said. Well said. So, uh, James, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about um, how people get in contact with Black Deported Veterans of America? And I know you have, you're also, a, a you know, the group is a channel to other deported veterans groups as well. So how do you, how, how can folks get in touch? Okay, well, uh, we have a website, BlackDeportedVeteransOfAmerica.com. Uh, and if you go there, we also have a, a link to contact us or basically to contact me right now. It's, it's in its basic. It, it looks pretty good, but it's really in its basic infancy uh, uh, for a website. But um, uh, it has um, uh, a lot of it has information on there. Uh, some of the people that we work with and, and events uh, that we've uh, uh, shared with. Uh, you have uh, there are videos on there that are educational to teach you one about the deported veteran uh, issue uh, and what also what to teach you uh, a bit about uh, H.R. 7946 uh, from Mr. Takano. It's one of his uh, town halls. Uh, and then you also have um, testimonies from people like uh, uh, Emoja and her her brother and uh, from Jean's family. Uh, Gene is a cat that's in Haiti, you know, uh, that um, he suffered. His, one of his sons uh, committed suicide, you know, while he's been gone. Uh, daughter uh, wound up getting into gangs. And these are all things that his family uh, 
can also attribute to the fact that he wasn't there because he had a good relationship with them prior to being deported. Uh, so it's one of the things that I messes with. So what we're trying to do is push the uh, legislation issue for uh, H.R. 7946 uh, to pass uh, because it's the first one of all the bills that have been out there that actually uh, has made it out of uh, the subcommittees and is into the House. As far as I'm concerned, it sets a precedence for us to be able to go forward from. Can it be better? Yes, but it, it does set a precedence for us to be able to go from. Uh, we partner with other organizations like Repatriate Our Patriots in El Paso, Texas, uh, Green Card Veterans in uh, Chicago, Illinois, a Unified U.S. Deported Veterans in TJ and Deported Veterans Support House, uh, which is uh, run by Hector Barajas. That is um, normally you would know it from TJ, but he's he's resettling it uh, here in San Diego. Um, and and then we work with uh, other uh, there are other individual organizations or people that are, are coming involved. Our blessing was that uh, we reached out in January and uh, uh, connected to the NAACP. And so we are looking for more of the black organizations to raise more awareness through our black leadership, the black caucus, so that they are part of this and not just keep seeing the Hispanic caucus. Because when you go and do your research on this, you're going to see Hispanic caucus is there about everything, but we don't have representation there. And in that video, that's what I bring up. If you don't know you got skin in the game, there's no reason for you to play uh, to play a part. So, Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, all of you. I really appreciate you coming on. And, um, you know, I mean, best wishes to your father, Emoja, and to David. I know you're in the midst of it as well. Um, and just thank you for the work that you're doing, James, not only really for all of your service um, to all of you, but for, you know, all of this that you now have to go through. It just it boggles my mind a little bit. So I hope we can raise a little more awareness about the issue. And and certainly, James, as you mentioned, the legislation that is um, that is out there um, and representation goes a long way. So um, thank you all for being here. One of the things to get uh, help, I'm sure you sure you got, is me to kind of share this with, share this with them because a lot of them uh, when they hear deported veteran, all they're thinking of is is our Latin brothers, you know, uh, uh, there and there. Well, that story's been done. That story's been done. You know, uh, I've tried my damnedest to, to, to give this to a black, you know, media outlet, you know, uh, because we're supposed to tell our story. You know, and and it just for whatever reason, you know, we're not blessed with enough people like you to go, hey, yo, no, no, we need to do we need to do a show on that. So uh, um, if you can share this with your your other peers and colleagues that that we we are we are available to, to tell this story. Uh, I think it's important to have people like Emoja uh, on there because very few people hear the, the side of the family and what they've lost that's a thing that needs awareness that needs to be raised, you know, even more, you know, uh, in my interview with her, oh my God, if you go, go to the site and you see her clip is on there, her and her brother break it down in a way where it's like, you see what, what one person removing one person can affect families uh, exponentially, you know, uh, and stuff. So please go to that website, black deported veterans of America.com. And, and and check it out. And uh, again, our contact information is there. 
uh, and um, um, and we are available to help pass pass this word to raise awareness. Uh, we have a donate button there, so don't be afraid not to 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 donate uh, on there. And uh, we'll we'll be putting our t-shirts up there uh, pretty soon too for uh, uh, donations and purchases. All right, thank you again. Appreciate you um, on the Jolly Podcast. So. Uh, look forward to hearing good news at some point. Most definitely. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.